The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Uh, so, Maureen, it's kind of funny. Like, people ask us why we call the podcast Women of Ill Repute. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an old-fashioned term, and uh, traditionally it has meant late, well, no, not ladies, women uh, who have sex for money, prostitutes. That's what they are, or were. Or were, yeah. Well, we sort of repurposed the Women of Ill Repute title to mean any woman who's chosen a non-traditional path. So it's supposed to be a compliment. So it's about um, it's about dealing with pushback or challenges, you know, all that kind of stuff. We should mention that we have uh, actually, we talk to men as well and to non-binary people. So I was thinking maybe we should change the name to House of Ill Repute. Oh, dear. I'm not sure I want to go there. I think it's close enough where we are. Anyway, not today, because you know what? This time we are talking to a real, actual woman of ill repute. Actually, Andrea Warehan calls herself a modern whore. Like, just there you go. That's the name of her memoir. And it is a fascinating read. Yeah, we both spent a few days reading it. It's pretty much a compilation of everything you've ever wanted to know about sex work, but you might have been afraid to ask. Well, we're not afraid. Yeah. We'll ask. Not afraid. So Andrea or Marianne or Sophie, she's had a few known de guerre stage names. She's worked as an escort, a stripper, an online sex worker, and of course, a writer. And uh, she's worked for a long time as a peer outreach worker for an advocacy group that fights for the decriminalization of sex work to make it safe and equitable for everybody. Yeah, big deal for her. And and the book, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's, it's like a... A coffee table book. There's all kinds of beautiful photographs of her taken by Nicole Bazouin. I'll have to double check with her how to pronounce that. Uh, but it, the, the book is full of like tips and lists and short stories. There's, Maureen, there's even a centerfold. There's a centerfold. I know. <laughs> I know. And it's going to be made into a motion picture. Yeah. Starring Andrea herself. So... Here she be. Here she be. Our first actual woman. Of, it took us a year and a half to get to you, but here you are. Welcome, Andrea. It's so nice to meet you. It's so great to be here. <laughs> I don't even know. Okay. It is like I've got your book behind me on the bookshelf and quite a few people have picked it up and went, whoa, what's this? And uh, so, yeah, what is this? Let's start with that. What is this? Well, it's a memoir of the 10 years I spent on and off in the sex industry in Toronto. And it's a compilation, as you've mentioned, of short stories, of a centerfold, of memoir, also some pretty clearly written fiction, poetry even, and a um, hundred naked photos of me. <laughs> let's get let's get Nicole's last name pronunciation. Is it's Bazwin? It's Bazine. 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 There you go. Design by Bazine. So how's it been? It's been out for uh, almost a year now, I guess, or maybe a little less. How's how's it going? How's the reception? Well, it's amazing. I mean, the story of the book itself is that the edition, the hardcover edition published by Penguin Random House Canada has been out for a year, but the original version of Modern Whore, the first edition came out in 2018 as a self-published book. And it was the first half of the current edition of Modern Whore. And so... You know, I've been out there for a while with this this work. But yeah, this like new iteration with the second edition. Postmodern horror. Postmodern horror. Yeah. It's been fucking oops, it's no, been no, amazing. Trust me, it's that's it's fine. 
We've used that word before. It's all right. Um, but I am kind of wondering, I mean, the, the world's oldest profession is sort of the, 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 the go-to line about uh, prostitution and now called sex work. But I wonder, like you're calling yourself a modern whore. It's been around forever. Is anything actually changing? I mean, are you different or are you just saying, hey, can we please have some rights? I mean, I think there is something different in that I can be a legal name, face out writer and performer with a memoir about being a sex worker and feel like I'm safe enough to do that. I think there's a lot of reasons why that is. Class reasons and I'm white and I'm educated and I'm cisgendered and it's a little bit more digestible perhaps to a mainstream audience. Even still, not super digestible to everyone, but I think that there is an opportunity today to get more stories out there that have never been told before. I think that's part of what's what's modern about being a sex worker today is that there are more avenues than ever for sex workers to be able to tell their stories and hopefully do it without fear. I mean, we're not quite there yet. I think there are still enormous risks in sex workers telling stories. But, you know, yes, it's been thousands of years of, of prejudices against women who use their sexuality to get ahead in this life explicitly. But we still look at the book and there's like, there's booby shots and there's <laughs> naked shots and we're like, oh my goodness, we're only used to seeing these in, uh, I don't know, Penthouse or Playboy. And this is like a, it's a book and it's, and it's out there and it's, I don't know, it's, it is modern. <laughs> It's a beautiful book too. I mean, it's it's beautifully made. It's beautifully bound. Good quality paper. Gorgeous photography. I mean, it's a real book, right? It's not some sort of something that you'd you'd pick up in a back alley. I want to ask you, and as, as everybody does, Andrea, I'm sure. Let's go back. So here you are. You've come from apparently a solid middle class background, a relatively loving home. I mean, we all can discuss our own backgrounds, but uh, well educated, beautiful. Why did this? particular profession attract you so much? The first thing that I wanted to be was someone who ran a kissing booth. (laughs) (laughs) For a lot of money, I hope. (laughs) A kiss for a nickel, I would have done it. I thought it was so cute to be able to, you know, share a little love and get a little money in return for that. And then the way that 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 sort of consciousness manifested as I grew older, I was 18, I was working at a cafe slinging coffee, getting tips, and realizing that there was an absolute correlation between my cleavage and the amount of money I was pulling in with tips. And so starting to feel like in various service industry jobs, especially working in restaurants, that I was already, in a sense, selling sexuality. And I could just get to the point, make a lot more money and work a lot less, which is, you know, a pretty cool thing when you're young and especially as a university student. So it just became kind of a way to maximize (laughs) my potential. And also as a writer, I was always very curious about this sort of secret world, especially about something that it was clear I wasn't supposed to talk about. That, That even drew me in more into people's secret lives and how people really behave behind closed doors and the reality of people's naked bodies and their desires and and how they treat me. I was just very curious about that. And so, yeah, that's how I sort I like, I, I talked to people. I started to get a kind of sense at first I wanted to be a stripper, which is a bit more 
I guess, a more accessible path into sex work, because I think the physical act of exchanging sex for money is, is more taboo than dancing naked on a stage. And I spent a year really thinking about what it would mean for, for me to become a stripper. I, I read memoirs. I, I really tried to educate myself, prepare myself, do a lot of reflection about what it was that I really wanted to do. And in the end, I had a friend who suggested to me that maybe escorting was a safer and more private and better paying way to engage in sex work that might be more ideal for me. And in the end, I I took the plunge. I contacted an agency and immediately got a job. There's so many things to talk about. I mean, there's the whole, the the, the feminist thing, the writer thing, the the sexuality thing, all of it. But before we do, before we do, just nitty gritty. So when becoming an escort, this is very different from, you know, streetwalkers of, to use again, a dated term. This is a somewhat protected situation where you have an agent and a driver. They used to call them madams or, but yeah, and a driver. I just want to clarify that there are different types of, I mean, there are hookers. You never use the word hooker. Uh, you were an escort and it was arranged through an agency. So I guess my question is there are levels, I guess, or even classes or a hierarchy of, of, of prostitution. Is there not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in sex work, we call that the horarchy. Okay. You know, and <laughs> it's, it's the class structure because yeah. you're right. There is a difference between somebody who is working on the street and, you know, the high class escort who can demand a thousand dollars an hour with a three hour minimum and all expenses paid. There's an obvious difference between those two pe- people, those groups. However, we're all sex workers. <laughs> There's no real <laughs> difference. We're all whores. We are doing exactly the same work and any distinction between us is strictly class related. And so, yeah, there's definitely difference. I mean, the nomenclature of, of hooker, you know, versus prostitute versus, you know, whore, whatever. Call girl. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's all these different things, but like an agency escort is pretty specific to somebody who is working for an agency that advertises for the escort, hires a driver to send the escort to appointments. The driver also acts as security as they know when and where people are at any given time. And they're usually waiting outside the location, which does provide safety as far as the client knowing there is somebody who knows, who is waiting for this person to check in. You know, I think the most dangerous situations are when, clients assume that the sex worker who has arrived has no bonds to anyone, you know, that no one's going to come looking for this person. The more bonds that we have with our communities, um, the safer we are. So who are the the Johns? You know, you, like now the, the new law brought in during the Stephen Harper era was that it's the Johns or the criminals. And so we can talk about, about all of that and how you get protected. Um, but I'm wondering who, you say something about nearly all the, the guys that you ended up with were married? <laughs> like, who are they? Uh, maybe I've watched too much television, but all the guys, they're, they're, like, they're like creepy or violent, but we probably need to get into. There is some creepy, there is some violent, and that's why you need protection. But who are these guys? Uh, and uh, the, Our husbands are not involved. I, mean. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> That'd be a hell of an episode. <laughs> 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 not gonna reveal anyone's indiscretions <laughs> Who knows? Um, without changing names i um i think that the vast majority of people who engage the services of sex workers are the most normal people that you can imagine and they i think there is a, a reason why we demonize clients or why, why we, we have certain unquestioned prejudices against the people who pay for sex. I think there is like a, a function there that, that continues the oppression of sex workers and also justifies violence against us by perpetuating the myth that it is this universally violent profession. But I, I can tell you that there are, you know, a wide variety of valid reasons that people seek out the physical pleasure and companionship that an escort can provide. I think when people think of um, like what happens between a sex worker and a John within an hour, I think people imagine that it's just like bang, 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 sex for an hour. And that's just not how it works. It's, it's more like 45 minutes of talking and, and 15 minutes of, of sex. And, you know, it doesn't usually last very long. That's just, you know, just to give you a more like detailed sense there. But the people that see sex workers, yes, often are married, but often are heartbroken. You know, they're getting over something and they just want some touch. They're traveling a lot. You may, they might not have anyone in their life, but they know they're, you know, they're bumping around from city to city and they just want a little companionship for a while. They're nerds. You know, they're people that can't, you know, have a really hard time picking people up in, in bars or, in, you know, or, or dating in general. I think dating is getting a lot harder especially when a lot of men know what they want when they, they meet a woman that they find attractive. They know they want to have sex with them. There are a lot of hoops to jump through if that is your primary goal, and it can often be quite expensive. And so, you know, there's this sort of like lazy bachelor who may in fact be quite, you know, dateable, but knows what he wants and knows it's sex and knows that if he has to go on several dates with someone and pay for dinners and, you know, who knows, like, it just might be more economically friendly to pay a professional to get the job done. I find this fascinating. You're so articulate about this that, that it's really, um, yeah, it's just fascinating. So I'm going to just jump into the dark side here. And which the question of rape and and you've had several experiences both as a uh, as an escort and as a stripper where the, your boundaries have been crossed and you and you point out and I'm pointing out again there will be people who will go well what do you mean consent was already established when you walked in the room so how do you deal with that obviously I would disagree with the idea that consent happens oh I would too but that argument will be made of course and yeah and to break that down it's like Consent doesn't happen when, when I walk into the room or when the money is exchanged. I, it doesn't shut me up to accept money. It doesn't remove any of my boundaries. Like I'm still a human being with, with desires and, and, and autonomy and, you know, a wish to be safe. And so consent, whether it's in a sex work context or it's in a romantic context or any other context, can be withdrawn at any time. And that, that always has to be respected. I think we, I think we assume in our prejudice against sex workers that we don't have the ability to consent or that we sign off our consent when we decide to become sex workers. 
that any violence that we experience is in fact our fault because we've chosen to put ourselves into a situation that is considered dangerous. And, and I think that's incredibly harmful, right? Like that's, that's not fair. You know, in, in New Zealand, they've decriminalized sex work for 20 years. And one of the things that it says in, in, in their law, what's on the books is that sex workers can withdraw consent at any time. That is on the books. And so I think we have a long way to go in Canada to just like talk about consent and about sex and about sex work. You know, because I think that we're still grappling with what it means to be a sexual person in general, right? And so I'm hoping that those conversations will take place about sex work as well. Hey there. Uh, Just so you know, Mo and I are not just the queens of podcasting. I'm not sure we're even that, but do go on. We're not part-time cowgirls. We just made that up. But we are writers. We're writers. Wendy and I write a newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly roundup of thoughts and experiences, sometimes serious, often not. Yeah, you're pretty funny. You you write about falling down a lot. Uh, You write about your dog. I do. You write about sex and politics and COVID. All very, very serious things. We have a few thousand subscribers, both free and paid. And you could be one of them if you'd like. Just go to Substack.com. And look us up by name or go to our website at womenofillrepute.com and sign up there. We'd love to meet you there. And now back to being the queens of podcasting. Yeah, sure. (laughs) The Women of Ill Repute. It's really interesting because I I mentioned before talking about the Johns that I probably watched too much TV, but uh, you write about it in your book about trauma porn and about how, you know, people want to pay you to reveal about why you're a sex worker and it must be all horrible. And I'm just one person and you're one person and everybody, like, I think you deserve human, human rights, but, but there is, there is this idea of you can't rape a sex worker. So, I mean, how how do you, uh, which is obviously wrong, as as Mo and and everyone acknowledges. How uh, I I don't know. How do you change that take? That's what you're trying to do. But are a lot of people going to buy modern? I I say whore, which is apparently the old way of saying it. It's whore, right? Um, how how do you how do you change that? That's because that's not your take. Like bad things happen, but you don't want to focus on that. Yeah, I mean, the idea that you can't rape a sex worker is something that I bring up in in the book because it's something that uh, someone said to me while I was giving them a lap dance. And, you know, he was so mortified that it had come out of his mouth uh, because the question he had asked was, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you here? And I said, rape. And he said, "Um, but you can't rape a sex worker. And he was so shocked by what he had said and I, I said, you know, no, I'm, I'm glad that you said it. I'm glad that you said it because this is what people believe. People believe that we don't have agency. And, and to suggest that we, we it's just that it, it suggests that we consent to rape, right? That's the implication. And that's so incredibly dark. And I, I think as far as like what I would like to contribute to the world, as far as my own personal experience is stories as a vehicle for humanity, because I don't think that people would want me to be raped 
you know, I, I think like once you hear my story, you're like, wow, that's a, that's a fully fleshed human being. I care about this person. I don't want her to be in a dangerous situation. And I think that that's the, that's what stories do. Stories create connections and relatability. And you realize like this, you put a face to a profession that feels so secretive and so dark. And the reality is that we are all weird. There's just so many human beings just like me who are engaging in this work who don't deserve to be raped. Wendy and I were talking about this before you came on, and I just have to say, you tell an incredibly good story, both the humor and, but some of some of the stories, and this is what I think I would have the biggest problem with. And it's just not a shame thing. And it's not a, I mean, I, I, certainly at this point in my life, while I'll probably not start my career as a sex worker, I not much bothers me or shocks me. But you tell some stories of some Johns that were absolutely repulsive, usually in terms of hygiene both their own and their environment where that's where I would say I couldn't possibly do this. So I want you like, that would be my, that would be my line in the sand. I can't do this. Never mind the danger. Never mind the purported shame. It would be the repugnance. You're laughing. Is that, is that a hard line for anybody for you to cross? Was it, or is that just me being, well, Wendy said I was prude and we had a fight about it. I said, it's not prudishness. <laughs> I don't actually think you're a prude. <laughs> you know, it's personal preference and it's also boundaries. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that my job is to accept people for who they are and to kind of uh, provide care for them in whatever state of hygiene they're in. I will say that a lot of the experiences I had where the hygiene was an issue was when I was like a little baby escort, you know, I was like 21. I, you know, I didn't have a ton of sexual experience going into escorting and I didn't have a ton of experience putting my foot down and telling a man to take a shower, you know, and especially with money on the line and knowing that like I needed the money, your boundaries start to get a little blurry when money is on the line, when this is your job. Right. And I think maybe that's also where the consent issue comes in and is like learning how to establish boundaries without making people repulsed by you, right? This is also like, this is a women's, a woman's play, <laughs> you know, like we always have to figure out how to assert boundaries without pushing people away or without losing opportunities. And when money's on the line and you need the money and you're working to pay your rent, it's like, can I afford to say no to the stinky man? <laughs> put it baldly. (laughs) There is so much. I mean, you talk about how you wanted to be prime minister as a kid and, and reading about it, it was, you know, it was like, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I'm allergic to animals, but you know, aside from from that, it would have worked out great. Um, And you're obviously not prime minister, but, but I wonder like everybody has, has these dreams (laughs) and now you're a writer uh, and now, and so, I mean, I, it's it's the whole shame thing and the prejudice thing and the the stigma and the shame but it is all about money and power really and and you have been you have managed to be in a position of power except for a couple of stinky guys (laughs) (laughs) i'm still a sex worker you know i'm still a whore like my position of power is fairly negligible Yes, I have the opportunity to tell my story and, you know, be published by Penguin Random House Canada and like, you know, work on a movie based on the book and kind of a big deal. It's great. Huge. 
But I, I think like, you know, my desire to be prime minister when I was a child, there was something in me that desired power, uh, but also wanted to inspire change in the world. And what I was able to recognize once I got to high school was that being the prime minister also meant lying pretty consistently to people that you are in charge of, of taking care of. And I realized that what I really wanted was to be a writer because I could have power, but I could also tell the truth and also inspire change. And so my desire to be a writer is sort of what trumps everything else. Sex work is a job for me. It's, it's, I talk about in the book, you know, three different ways to, to look at work. And, you know, one of them is survival. You just do it for the money. And then the other is occupation. You're doing it because it's your job. You have other options. You can, you know, do other things, but this is your job. It's your occupation. And then vocational, you know, like some people do work and they feel like it's their higher calling. And sex work has, for me, felt, you know, somewhere in between occupational and vocational at times. These days, it's far more occupational than anything. But writing has always been my vocation, always been the thing that I want to do. And so sex work happens to be the vehicle in which I can write and tell my story and and be able to talk to wonderful women like you. Sex work is just kind of, <laughs> it's just a job. It's just a job. I was thinking a lot about writing and sex work this weekend because this is, I've had my, you know, head deep into your book. And it occurred to me that in some ways, because I, I write or aspire to write, I write, that you're putting yourself in a more vulnerable position when you put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keyboard than you are when, you know, you're, you're having sex for money. I mean, that's, a, that's between two people or three or four, I mean, depending on the scenario. But when you're writing, especially for other people, you're putting your, you're revealing far more of yourself. Yeah, writing is very vulnerable and it's part of why it's so incredibly difficult and why writers often hate writing because it's so hard to be that vulnerable with the page. And also, I think we intuitively understand that it's only in being vulnerable that we can reach people, create writing that is actually moving. And so there's just, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of frustration and there's a lot of blockages that arise when we try to express ourselves in honest ways on the page. And yeah, I mean, I just, I felt like I had to shoot my shot. You know, I, what have I got to lose? Like, I'm already a public prostitute. I may as well just like lay it all out there and see what happens. Well, your mom, she was a, or is a a devout Catholic. And uh, it sounds like there were a few hills and valleys with her during this, this process. Um, But she said to you, why don't you just like tell the world that you were a sex worker or whatever, and then write comedy. What are you just right like you're very you're very funny you're a very good writer you're obviously articulate why didn't you do that no money <laughs> I mean I'm I think there's comedy in everything that I do <laughs> You were a receptionist in a comedy we, we didn't name names so we won't now I can figure out where where you were but uh, yeah that is a that's a very interesting hat to throw with the, red, the other headgear you have. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I've always been interested in comedy. I have lots of experience doing improv and doing uh, silly things on stage. I have lots of experience doing that. And yeah, I think that that's never gone away. I think that the humor, humor is actually one of the most important aspects of my creativity and of my sexuality. And I think the three are firmly intertwined in in how I express myself. And I think humor is what connects us all. 
And if we can make jokes about the things that are the most uncomfortable and the most taboo, I think there's such an opportunity to break down walls that we have that separate each other. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I'm still in comedy. <laughs> we all are, whether we're aware of it or not. There's so much more that we want to ask you. And I just, I just don't want to forget. I did want to ask you, and you probably get asked this a lot. And I feel like despite reading all about you and looking at your pictures, I feel like I'm, I might be being intrusive here, but I'm curious for a sex worker where the, the, the line between intimacy, like your own personal, personal intimate relationships, how that comes to bear uh, or came to bear, I don't think you're doing this actively anymore, with your own personal intimate relationships. How do you marry the two or separate the two? I've been very fortunate. I have an incredible loving partner that I've been with now for almost 13 years. Wow. Yeah. And so he's, he's quite understanding of my work being work. There's a separation. If money is exchanged, it's work. It's not anything more than that. And then as far as my own relationship to my clients in the past, it's like, these are relationships that I cultivated over years. It's never just wham, bam. You know, these are conversations that develop over time. They are relationships to me um, that do involve an exchange of, of money for sexual labor and I don't know, it's, it's different. It's easy for me to compartmentalize paid sex and free sex. But I, but I wonder, like, we're obviously like a couple of years older than you. Um, I wonder if, if there's a generational thing going on here, because I was raised in an age where, you know, prostitution was a bad thing. Emmanuel Jacques, the, the little shoeshine boy who got, and I was, I was a child and there was this sort of moral panic and prostitutes were a bad thing and pornography was a bad thing. But the happy hooker came out at the same time. Yeah, and there's a review of her in the New York Times, which is wonderful. But I just, I don't know, I, I just wonder, are things actually, I mean, you spoke about this a little bit at the beginning, but uh, there, there's good and there's bad, and you talk about all of them in, in, in your book, uh, as well as the photos, the beautiful photos. But are we, are we changing, it, or is it just a generational thing? Like, are, are young people, like, cool with it? Like, I am so supportive of you having the rights to work however the hell you want to work, whether it's, you know, minimum wage at, at, a, uh, at Walmart or whether it's doing whatever it is that you want to do. But I guess I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of, is it, is it just old people that, <laughs> that have an idea of, of prostitution and porn and all of that as being something that needs to be regulated? Well, you've argued that it should be decriminalized. I think there is a generational pull, you know, as far as what young people believe in. I think that we are far more open to different types of relationships that we can have with people. I think perhaps boomers have, have a greater attachment, say, to something like marriage, right? Where younger people just don't get married as much anymore. Like we don't want to be necessarily legally bound to people. I know I have a complicated view of marriage. Like I, I don't have any interest in it, for instance. I'm also polyamorous. So I'm in an open relationship. And, you know, a lot of young people are also just sort of understanding that like this idea of, of owning your partner or owning 
the people in your life and and making claims to their desires and their sexuality, it's kind of out. Like honest communication is in. Um, married couples have always cheated on each other. That's just non-consensual polyamory. Except our husbands, of course. As far as we know. <laughs> Your husbands are totally loyal. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No question there. But but the reason people cheat is because they, they, they're not communicating their desires to one another. They're not being honest with each other. And I, I think younger generations, we just... I think we're, we're, we're just more willing to have those conversations with each other and, and pursue the things that we desire. I, and I don't know, I, I think maybe it's because we, we've grown up in a climate crisis and, and our futures look kind of bleak and we, we, we don't have access to the same sort of comfort and securities of, of homeownership and retirement. Like our life is work. You know, our life, we live in a capitalist hellscape. We need to work to survive. And that's another thing that I think impacts younger generations as far as our perception of sex work. Like we can't, <laughs> we have to work. <laughs> and so sex work, sex work is another form of labor that so many people are doing. And, and I think there's just, uh, there's less fear about just being honest and open about the fact that, that we are doing sex work to survive capitalism. It, and, and in a way, no one has a choice when it comes to work. We all have to do it. It's just a matter of finding the best of, uh, you know, not a great platter of options, right? And, and sex work is ideal for some people because it's the most amount of money you can make in the shortest amount of time. Um, you know, you can be your own boss. You don't need you don't need to work for an agency you don't need to have a pimp you know you can advertise you can that's changed See, that's that's a big difference to to wendy's point between now and then is that you can be your own boss as it were and traditionally you couldn't yeah you can be independent and and i think that for a lot of women who and a lot of trans people and men people who engage in sex work run run the gamut as far as gender sexuality race, class, everything, everywhere. There are sex workers everywhere around the world doing this labor. And, you know, we do it for the money. We do it because we have to, we do it because we like it. We do it because we feel it's our calling. But at the end of the day, we do it for money. We live in a time where we're in an affordability crisis. It is so expensive to exist. We know what happens when we become impoverished and society discards us. And, you know, if we become, you know, is the moment that you hit the streets, insult hurled is, is get a job. Okay, well, sex workers have a job, you know, and they don't necessarily rely on people. They don't want handouts. You know, a lot of sex workers are fiercely independent, fiercely proud and autonomous. And they, they're doing what they have to do because they don't want to rely on anyone else. Okay, Wendy, I know you're going to wrap it up. I have one more, I have one more question. <laughs> we've gone, we've gone long on this, but it's, I mean, I could talk about this for another hour. Um, this is a sort of silly question because I know you're making a movie of modern horror and you're going to be in it because I can't imagine who else would play you. You'd be perfect for you. <laughs> I'm wondering, just out of curiosity, there were a lot of movies made about prostitutes from Pretty Woman to Belle du Jour. Do you have a, do you have a favorite? Do you have oh my God. one where you go either that's not at all like this, but I enjoyed it or, or yeah, this is the story of my life. Like Hustlers. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned that in your book too. The uh, Jennifer Lopez movie that came out that really put the world on his ear. Do you have a fave? A fave. I mean, I really, 
I like um I like Sean Baker's work. Um so he did the Florida project and that film features a sex working mother and the sex work isn't yeah. the sort of like main subject, right? It's the story of the children and and what they do when they're sort of running yeah. around living life. But I, I thought that that depiction of sex work was just so nuanced and compassionately viewed. Like it didn't feel prejudiced. I, I think that there was a lot of work that went into making sure that that depiction was complex and neither, you know, a, a super positive glamorized depiction of sex work or a, you know, one note, dark, traumatizing, terrible depiction at the same time. I think you like understand when you watch that movie that that's with Willem Dafoe, isn't it? Was it? Yes, yes. it oh, is. Oh, I know. I loved it. It was a fantastic movie. Not pretty woman then. You mean that's not realistic? and we all look just like her yeah yeah uh well it's been quite eye-opening uh to talk to you andrea so thank you so much for your book and the way that that you think and um and if you ever go back there just make them take a shower (laughs) (laughs) that's our takeaway it's a real pleasure to meet you andrea good luck with everything i hope i mean for all our sakes i hope that some of the things that you wish for sex workers happen because because it's a necessary uh, uh, service. How about that? And uh, it needs to be made safe for everyone. Yeah, there's a reason it's been around for thousands of years. Thank you so much for uh, for making us think and making us laugh. And, and good luck in the movie. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure. Wow. So, yeah, she. I, I really, really enjoyed the book, Maureen. I, I, I know you did too, but uh, it, it just makes you think, makes you feel kind of queasy, but it also really makes you think. And she's, uh, and she's wonderful. Is it shallow for me to say, my God, is she pretty? <laughs> it's just beautiful. When she first came on the screen, I was like, she looks like she's six. How could she be 30, whatever she is? Little, she is, she is young. Um, maybe not as young as she appears. I kind of wanted to ask her, don't your Johns fall in love with you? Not just because she's so beautiful, but because she's so warm and empathetic and charming and funny and all those things. And I'm sure that must happen. She had a lot of repeat customers. She had a lot of regulars. Um, yeah, well, which, one of them actually said the reason I didn't call you back was because I was afraid I was going to fall in love with you. Yeah. And then I think yeah. he ended up being a little... Um, creepy yeah so, well uh, <laughs> yeah but I, and the most interesting thing was like I, I've always I think been supportive or I hope I've always been supportive of the idea that you do you're a human being you deserve rights it, it is work so your work should be should be supported but her whole idea is that it's you know it, is it any worse really than than I don't know uh, doing some horrible job for fifty years like yeah like, no like I know and we, other than that <laughs> we also didn't talk about uh, you know her mother gave her an ultimatum and said I would like you to be out of this in a year and she did but then she took up stripping so <laughs> which brings a, you know a whole other uh, set of um, um, conditions into play. It's um, funny, after all of these years, women of ill repute, um, so it sort of started as a women of influence uh, on its heels. Um, yeah. We're not, we're women of influence, I hope, but uh, well, we dream to be, but we're, we are kind of of, of ill repute, but it's the first sort of prostitute, prostitute. That, that we've spoken to. And uh, it was quite, uh, quite mind blowing, I think. Let me ask you a quick question, because God knows Uh-oh. we're going on forever on this. We might have to do a series, but like I have sons. 
I know there are male prostitutes, um, but there, but the majority are women. How would you feel, given what uh, uh, Andrea shared today, if if your daughter were to say, "Mom, I think I'm going to become a sex worker. It's the best way to make money." Well, my daughter, who just turned 25, um, she has a number of friends who were sex workers and were involved in sex work, and and it was. To, to some degree, um, you know, some of it was just like, I've got great feet, shoot my feet and that you can get off on my feet. But uh, so, so what is, is that really sex work? Or is I, that well, just I a guess so. Fetish? I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but some of it was more than that. Um, I don't, I've never, I, I don't think I would be comfortable with that. I think I, I don't think I would be either. I don't think <laughs> I would be either. And I think that's, that's normal given our the way we've been socialized and and maybe our generation. Um, but yeah, I would be very dismayed um, because it's dangerous and because it takes a, vi- like there are a lot of really fucked up people who, uh, who work in the sex trade or use the sex trade. And you just don't wish that for, for your child to be exposed to that. But that being said, people like Andrea are, responsible and for for the changes that have taken place well and, and she's for that i'm grateful and she's got a book and she's uh, very successful and uh and a nice nice partner and and she yeah. seems very happy so who are we to judge <laughs> well let's keep judging that's <laughs> what we do <laughs> women of ill repute was written and produced by maureen holloway and wendy mesley with the help from the team at the sound off media company and producer Yet Belgraver. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.